welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Today's episode will be hosted by Matthew Reed Krell, lecturer in the Faculty of Law in the University of West Indies Cave Hill campus. We will engage in a dialogue about my article, Plagiarism is Not a Crime, which is published in the Duquesne Law Review. So I'll hand it over to you, Reed. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. This is a, a really uh, great opportunity. I'm really looking forward to discussing this with you. Um, I, I started reading your article, and I had read it before uh, several years ago, um, but I, I reread it recently because uh, of a conversation you were having with some folks on on Twitter about some larger questions of plagiarism norms. Um, and I think that this article's really timely now as we're sort of starting to rethink a lot of our assumptions about higher education in general and higher education in the United States more specifically. Um, so for you know listeners who may not be familiar with the article, I want to talk a little bit about sort of how I understand the article and then tell you a little bit about the things that I think worked very well and maybe some things that, that didn't work uh, as, as well. So for those listening at home, if you've been to a conference, this is a sort of like a, a panel you might see called an author meets critics sort of panel where we discuss someone's uh, research and then they get an opportunity to respond. So in Plagiarism is Not a Crime, Brian, you, you make the argument that plagiarism and copyright infringement are conceptually very close cousins but that they have significant differences. And primarily those differences, as I understand uh, how you think about them, are that plagiarism is not um, something that is sort of enforced legally. It's enforced through social norms, but also because, because it is a social norm, plagiarism forbids a much broader swath of conduct than copyright infringement. And Arguably, there are greater consequences for plagiarism. As, as you point out in the article, the uh, worst things that can happen to someone who commits copyright infringement is there may be some, some criminal fines associated with it. It's very unlikely that there's any sort of um, imprisonment associated with it, but mostly it's a financial harm, whereas uh, being convicted or found to have committed plagiarism can end careers in academia or elsewhere, um, except apparently for Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> but you find, you argue that copyright infringement and plagiarism norms are similar enough, or at least are treated as similar enough that it seems to you that they should be justifiable under similar theories. And so if a particular theory is compelling as a justification for copyright infringement, then it must justify plagiarism norms, or there is some sort of problem with one or the other. And so to the extent that the two systems are commensurate, right, so that they're com comparable, I think I buy this premise. The problem that I have is that the article goes on to explain in great detail in a very compelling and I think persuasive way just how different copyright infringement and plagiarism norms actually are. And I think to that extent, 
this that piece of the article and the argument that you're making in it sort of undermines um, the entire premise that you've started from, which is that these two things are comparable to one another. And so my, you know, one of my my questions is, if there's as much difference as you point out between copyright and plagiarism, why is it that they have to be justifiable under the same theory? So you you outline this economic theory of copyright, this uh, justification for copyright as a social welfare enhancing um, legal mechanism. And I think that's probably accurate in, in terms of how copyright is justified. But why does it follow that economic theory has to be the basis for supporting plagiarism norms? I don't feel like I have, I don't feel like at the end of the article, I understand the answer to that question. But one of the things that I do think is extremely effective about this article is you make the point, you make it very clearly and very cogently and with a, a significant amount of evidence that one of the things that's important about plagiarism norms is that it, they differ across different writing communities. So journalists have one set of plagiarism norms that you describe in, in detail related to the difference between attributing quotes versus attributing other material and the fact that you know, readers of journalism don't really expect anything that a journalist says to be the journalist's own ideas, um, even if they are expressed without attribution, um, versus legal norms, right? And in legal norms, plagiarism is extremely accepted, especially uh, when judges plagiarize lawyers. You know, that's the best day I ever had as a practicing lawyer was the day the Arkansas Court of Appeals plagiarized my brief. Um, you know, and then we have academic plagiarism norms, which I think are sort of the, the main target of your article. And I think that's reasonable given sort of the audience for law review articles. So I think that you, you drill down to a theory for justifying academic plagiarism norms that I think is correct, which is that academic plagiarism norms should reflect academic purposes. And to the extent that the existing plagiarism norms do not reflect those academic purposes, they should be jettisoned. And to the extent that they do, they should be retained. Um, but I think that that raises sort of two different uh, types of norms. And I, because I think that scholars, right, professors and researchers have a different set of academic purposes from students. And I think the article really only talks about student-oriented plagiarism norms. So I'll dispose of the scholarly norms very briefly, which is that I think that for scholars, plagiarism norms are really about credit claiming and about making sure that you, your work is situated in a dialogue between those who have come before and those who come after. Um, and I don't think you would disagree with that as sort of being the underlying expectation for scholars is that you are demonstrating that you know the work that has already come before you. Um, and so for that reason, I'm not convinced that at the end of this article, you actually would advocate for any significant changes in how scholars uh, behave with regard to plagiarism. For students, I think you are absolutely right that the purpose of plagiarism norms should be to encourage behavior 
in writing and in, in other student activities that encourage mastery and growth and learning and other pedagogical goals. And I think you give a great example of patch writing as a learning technique that serves these pedagogical goals but runs afoul of current plagiarism norms. I think it would have been helpful for me to have seen a more extensive canvas of the pedagogical literature so that we could sort of get a feel for what's in and what's out as far as, as student behavior. Um, and I think that another thing that would have been helpful would have been a distinction in terms of, of student expectations between formative assessments, you know, where sort of students are demonstrating that they they are engaged with the material and that they are are struggling to to learn where maybe plagiarism norms aren't as shouldn't be as strong and then summative assessments where maybe they should be and so that i think sort of lays out my thinking about the article i think it's a really um outstanding piece uh with the exception of just sort of these couple of places where I've, I've identified that I don't quite find the argument compelling. So at, at this point, I'd like to hear sort of what you think about my uh, assessment and sort of why I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, Reed, initially, I just wanted to thank you for that really thoughtful and rich discussion of the article. Um, I wish that I could have gotten it before I published it because I think it, it would have improved the piece immensely. Um, as my friend Agnes Callard in her usual blunt way said to me the other day, um, my writing is decent, but could be a lot better if I had a good editor. Um, and um, and I, I think that that's this kind of very nicely illustrates that. Um, I, 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 so I'll just kind of run through some of the points that you made in turn um, and reflect a little bit on some of them. So, I mean, I, I you're absolutely right that the normative framing of the paper is a little bit of a bait and switch. Um, and I think the intention when I wrote it was kind of to be a little tongue in cheek about the idea that the justification for really either copyright protection or plagiarism norms is really fundamentally or even primarily uh, economic or commercial. It's a story we tell ourselves about the justification for copyright. Uh, ownership, copyright enforcement, and the scope of copyright protection. But I think oftentimes it's a it's a story that works very nicely in theory and has very little, if anything, to do with the actual practice of those that area of law in in everyday life. And ultimately, I think the same is true of of plagiarism norms. So I think I probably should have done a better job of sort of conveying the kind of sarcastic elements of that argument to readers because I, I i i think maybe i buried them a little more than i should well in in your defense i think this was at the very beginning of your uh second act in your scholarly career as a conceptual artist uh and, and so you i don't think you had sort of uh gone as as deeply into that uh that 
approach to your scholarship. This is a fair point. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, ho- hopefully in subsequent pieces, I've uh, honed that skill to a greater degree and I'm now doing it at least somewhat more effectively. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a really fair point. Um, and and I, it was really part of what I was trying to do with this article and hopefully I'll be doing in subsequent articles reflecting on on plagiarism norms uh, more broadly is to really think about sort of what the normative backdrop against which we consider them justified and consider their enforcement justified really is and what we're trying to accomplish by doing plagiarism norms. And I, I'm glad that you noted the kind of the difference in how different communities think about plagiarism norms, because one thing that I I don't think I did as great a job as I could have in this paper and hope to talk about more in the future is how very frequently it seems like disputes about plagiarism tend to arise when different um, rhetorical communities or different literary communities overlap with each other in unexpected ways. And then you get differing expectations about attribution and ownership coming into conflict and at periods of time when that wouldn't normally happen. Um, and, and I think that that really kind of highlights and underscores just how tailored different plagiarism norms are to particular contexts. And one thing I'm, I'm hoping to explore in, in future work is how those differing norms seem to be at least partially a product of the sort of quasi-economic backdrop against which particular uh, communities function. So I'm kind of thinking of like a kind of a kind of economic history of the concept of plagiarism as a way of indicating how the norms reflect self-regulation within certain literary communities, you know, really for better or for worse, right? I mean, it would be a kind of a descriptive project saying, like, here we can see how different norms emerge in relation to the way people use literature in a particular period of time, the market for literature in a particular period of time, and the modes and methods of distribution of literature at a particular period of time. And I think one reason maybe that we're seeing kind of a renewed awareness of and attention to plagiarism norms today is that we're seeing such a kind of profound transition in how people create, distribute, and consume literary works, and that maybe, maybe we'll see shifting plagiarism norms in in relation to that. Um, I very much take your point that in that particular paper, I didn't spend a lot of time talking about uh, academic plagiarism norms as they affect scholars really in in any discipline. Um, I did try to return to that question more directly in a later paper called uh, Plagiarized This Paper, but you're absolutely right that that first piece focused primarily on student plagiarism norms. And I would just say, kind of broadly speaking, my take on academic plagiarism norms as they affect scholars is, is I agree with you that there are ways in which they reflect scholarly norms that are broadly beneficial 
and um, scholarly practices that we should encourage, promote, and desire, right? So like attribution and demonstrating mastery of the literature and situating your scholarship within a broader scholarly context. All Obviously, all of these are absolutely critical to frankly really be doing scholarship and helpful scholarship in the first place. I guess the one area where I'm personally a little, um, I'm a little skeptical of how they play out in practice is when they start to become very ownership oriented as opposed to readership oriented. And so I mean, my broader suggestion when it comes to academics is primarily that we think about plagiarism norms as being less about mandatory and enforceable attribution, like in a sort of penal sense, as it were, and more about, um, uh, about optional or kind of uh, uh, attribution where people choose and selectively decide and are given a kind of uh, community-based right to think about when and why attribution is appropriate and justified under the circumstances. In other words, kind of shifting or decentering the obligation to the author rather than externalizing it to the owner or the community enforcing ownership. And, you know, I think that's a, it would be a complicated transition. And I think there's conversations to have about how we ought to think about that and what those obligations ought to look like. But in a lot of ways, I think that that could actually work to reshift scholarly power within the academy and also um, enable and maybe even encourage people to not always just rely on the kind of canonical institutional sources and think about alternative ways of helping readers contextualize and understand scholarly production in a more um, decentralized, bottom-up sort of way. Similar to that, right, I, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but this, I, I think this is actually a really important point that you're making, and I want to, to expand on it and, and give you an opportunity to expand on it as well. But, you know, it, the the things that we read and the things that we cite are themselves um, choices, and very frequently those choices are not necessarily made by us; they're made for us, right? So the vast majority of the things that I cited in my dissertation, right, it, as I was completing my doctoral studies the vast majority of the things that I cited were either things that my advisor had told me to read or things that I had found while reading the things my advisor told me to read or so on, you know, down the chain through, through the links of, of citations. And I think this gets to the point that Miria Holman of, of Tulane says that citations are political and that the decision, the decision to cite somebody who is a jerk or who uh, sexually harasses their students, right? These are choices that we make and they're choices that we can make differently. And, and I think this is similar to something that you've said, you know, that no one owns an idea. And so you don't have to cite the jerk for a particular proposition. There's somebody out there who isn't a jerk in that way, 
who has said the same thing that you can cite. Mm-hmm. No, that I, couldn't, I could not agree more. And I, I think what this really gets at to me is the way in which we as scholars internalize the idea that plagiarism norms in some way kind of keep people honest and ensure that people receive the credit they're entitled to by virtue of the work that they've done. Um, and I guess I'm really skeptical of the kind of institutional consequences of how we do plagiarism norms, because as you kind of allude, my experience of how they work in practice is that citations continue to accrue to the biggest, most important people in the field who tend to be older white men, right? And so we think of plagiarism norms as being something that's sort of a leveling force, but really it's a way of cementing existing institutional hierarchies. And there's no reason, as you say, that you know, if the purpose of citation, especially citation uh, for substantiating ideas or communicating information ideas to readers, uh, is you know that's that's why we do it in the first place. There's no reason that you couldn't choose a, a whole range of different potential sources to provide you know citations to. But institutionally, as you say, right? I mean, there's a strong kind of lodestar center of gravity that says you should cite this kind of key, quote unquote, key work in the field. No one's ever going to question you for doing that, right? And I think we ought to be encouraging people to think, as you say, politically about who you're citing and why you're citing and which which resources are actually going to be best suited to the claims you're trying to make, best suited to situating your work in the literature, and best sort of recognizing the people who are going to provide the most interesting, useful, and um, and kind of contextually helpful information to to readers. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's like, and, and just to digress for one moment, I, I do think that part of this is a function of what I see as a kind of slippage in the way that we talk about what's happening when we're concerned about plagiarism. So especially in a kind of scholarly context, I really try to, in later work, I try to make a distinction between two kinds of plagiarism. So there's like arguments of plagiarism relating to already published work that's available in the public, right? So essentially the the claim is you didn't properly credit my already published publicly available work and you should have because of internal institutional norms. I'm that's the kind of plagiarism claim I'm skeptical of because it could very well be that the person didn't think that they should or there are reasons not to cite that work or reasons to cite some other work that they thought was better or more helpful or more appropriate under the circumstances. The kind of plagiarism claim I'm not skeptical of is one where typically a senior scholar receives information or ideas of some kind in confidence from a junior scholar and then uses that information or those ideas to preempt or kind of undercut that junior scholar. I think that kind of plagiarism is really problematic and unfortunate and should be very strongly discouraged, although it's way more prevalent than I think people recognize or want to admit, especially because it's so easy for senior scholars to kind of squelch any kind of actual substantive complaints about it. 
But I also think it's something really different that's talking about a really different kind of problem that's more about the power dynamic between the senior person and the junior person who's trying to have a you know, a relationship, a mentorship relationship in confidence. When you're talking about already publicly available information, well, then readers can look at what's out there and make up their own mind, right? Did this author choose the right work to cite? You know, you say they didn't, they say they did. I'll look at them both and make up my own mind, right? I think that that's, a, that, that's, that, that's part of the scholarly enterprise in a lot of ways, Right. Whereas this kind of sub Rosa stealing ideas from others that were provided in confidence, I think that's something that, you know, A, it happens way more than, than I think we want to institutionally recognize. And I've heard so many stories from people about this happening, which I think are really troubling. Um, but I think that's the kind of dynamic we really need to be concerned about. And the plagiarism norms we have really don't do much of anything to address it. I, I, think, you're, I think you're really hitting on a, a particular um, really great point that the existing plagiarism norms as as they are currently constituted and enforced, right? Not just how they're sort of how we the stories we tell ourselves about plagiarism, but also the way we actually act against it, that it's very much not about the plagiarism that we see around us, but it's about enforcing the existing power hierarchy. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And 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 I think that's the thing that really bothers me more than anything else about the narrative that we tell ourselves and also the extent to which a lot of people who are actually subordinated within the hierarchy can find can kind of inadvertently find themselves internalizing some of those hierarchical understandings right because they feel wronged by what senior people have done and this is the only tool available to talk about the kind of wrong that they've experienced. And I I think they're right to feel wronged, but I'm not sure this is the right tool for talking about addressing and remedying the harm that they've suffered. And I think we need, I would like to see us recenter that conversation to really focus more on the hierarchical problems that are actually, as I see at the root of this problem. I mean, this is this is sort of wildly off base of the conversation, but it seems to me that what you're describing is almost the institution of a fiduciary expectation on senior scholars. Uh, I, I could not agree. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Actually, I think that's 100 percent right. And uh, I may I may borrow and attribute that to you <laughs> as, as as I will with your other uh, comments that you made about my discussion of plagiarism norms in relation to students, which I thought were really thoughtful and will be really helpful because I'm currently working on a follow-up paper with Megan Boyd and it's on me. She's done her part of the work and now it's my time to start doing a little something too. Sorry, Megan. Um, but we're going to be talking about um, kind of thinking about plagiarism norms in the context of legal research and writing. And I think the distinction that you made between formative and summative assessment and how we might think about plagiarism norms differently in those two contexts is actually really helpful and thoughtful. And I'll, I'll be rolling that around in my head as we work 
on the paper, but it also got at another point that you made about kind of plagiarism norms in in different uh, social uh, literary communities. And as you pointed out, right, I mean, as a law practitioner, right, quote unquote, if, you, if plagiarism is totally normal, in fact, I mean, I would be inclined to say, like, as a legal practitioner, if you're not plagiarizing, you're committing malpractice, <laughs> right? I mean, you better be plagiarizing because if there's a really good argument or a way of expressing something out there, you should use it, right? And if you're, very least, you're probably churning the file and and billing unnecessary time, yeah, exactly. And if you're a tra- if you're a transactional lawyer who's not plagiarizing, I mean, oh my god, that's like per se malpractice. <laughs> right? I mean, like, oh, I rewrote the contract from scratch because I didn't want to copy what somebody else said. I mean, no, no, right? But then the irony is that when we teach legal research and writing, we say to students, well, you can't copy anything as a learner, right? Because that would be plagiarism that's bad with the sort of implicit understanding that like, well, we, we all know that you were at a firm last summer and the firm like gave you a brief bank to copy from. And basically what you were learning was, was plagiarism in the service of law. But once you get back to school, you're not allowed to do that anymore. And not only that, but if you do the same kinds of things you did when you were practicing, then we're going to punish you for it. In fact, we might even expel you for it and we're going to call you bad names. So wait until you're actually practicing before you do that kind of thing. And that just strikes me as really, really odd because if what we're trying to do, especially in in LRW classes, is prepare students for the practice of law and the practical aspects of the practice of law, what we're saying is that academic plagiarism norms in that context are actually prohibiting us from teaching students a really important skill that practicing lawyers need to have in order to succeed. And like, given the option of weighing plagiarism, academic plagiarism norms as kind of ossified in form and teaching students how to be effective practicing lawyers when they graduate, I'll take the latter any day of the week, right? I mean, I think that's what we should be doing. And it's if, if plagiarism norms are preventing it, then they should go out the window, not teaching students the kinds of skills that they actually need. Yeah, and this this is something that I'm I'm actually struggling with myself right now because part of my teaching package this this year is actually going to be in our uh, legal methods research and writing sequence. And and just to be clear for my dean, if and when he listens to this, I will of course comply with the university's uh, plagiarism policy and and report students as necessary um, w- when they violate that particular policy. But uh, um, you know, the, as a normative matter, I, I really do struggle with the the issue of um, is the the plagiarism. Rule that we are holding the students to helping them meet their needs and what what we are trying to accomplish with them and for them in the educational institution. Um, And I think you do a very good job in this article of making the case that there has become a disconnect between how we talk about plagiarism that as our students commit it versus what we are attempting to accomplish for them as learners. And I think that that conversation is really uh, helpful and important. And I, I, I really appreciate you sort of casting the gauntlet. I guess this is, you know, one of the benefits of tenure is that, that you have the freedom to sort of say, I'm, 
you know, screw your rules. <laughs> well, Reed, I can't tell you how much I appreciate such a close, thoughtful, and rich reading of my work. Um, I think that's one of the great rewards for any scholar is someone who engages so, so deeply in what they're doing. So I really, really appreciate your comments. I really appreciate your thoughts, which I'll be incorporating into future work. And because you're the host of today's episode, I'll give you the last word. If there's any thoughts you, uh, you, you still have, you'd like to kind of lay out there or any parting uh, closing words that you might have for listeners. Once, once again, thanks Brian for giving me this opportunity to talk to you about this article. I, I hope that this opens the door to a new format um, for for Ipsy Dixit and and ways for you to engage with sort of uh, other other uh, types of scholarship um, and also to publicize your own work. Um, you know, this has been a really great opportunity for me, and um, I, uh, I thanks again and thanks to all the the listeners. Awesome. We'll read best of luck in your new position. And um, it was really fun talking to you. Yes, thanks so much.
The stage smells, tells, hells, bells, miss, bells, knocks me on my knees. It didn't hurt, flirt, blood, squirt, stop, shirt, like me on a tree. After I count down three rounds in hell, I'll be in good company. 